My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast and I am returning with the 2022 70mm Festival. Um, I had always envisaged these shows coming out at this time of year. It's kind of where I fell in love with epic films. I think it kind of goes back to 1999 when I was at university and we had screenings of films like Exodus and Cartoon. Both of those films have been featured in the previous uh, year's 70 Minute Movie Festival. And I've really got my nice to get my act together this year and kind of get it all organised and recorded on time. So if you're not familiar with the format, this is how it's going to work. So the first time I did this, I, I, I just picked 10 70mm films and what I realised quite quickly was there wasn't actually a great deal many 70mm or purely shot in 70mm sorry and so last year I decided to mix things up a bit and what I did was um, I began to include films that were 70mm blow-ups and if you listen to part one of last year's show I go into great detail about how that came about and the process behind it so the format now takes this I will bookend each festival with a bona fide 70mm film and the other eight films will be 70mm blow-ups. And this year, I do really think I've got quite an interesting selection. There is a stone-cold bank holiday classic, a sequel to one of the greatest films ever made, an underrated Cold War thriller, a disaster movie featuring an incel, a fantasy film that I'd never even heard of, let alone watched, and a few more that I've never seen until I put this year's festival together. So, without much further ado, I'm going to get on with it and we're going to kick things off with a rather great, if I believe slightly misunderstood film. Barometer, sentries come in from the hill. They say... Dollar side. Sir. You have something to report? Sir. And tell me. Very good, sir. The sentries report Zulus to the southwest. Thousands of them. live in the UK, a bank holiday will go something like this. In the build-up to it, the weather will be absolutely beautiful and you will excitedly make plans to go to the coast, perhaps even go and visit friends somewhere and or you might just go out and plan a nice walk somewhere. And then the bank holiday arrives and the weather is absolutely terrible, which means you basically spend either the time reading a book or watching films. And 1964's Zulu would have possibly been one of those films you would be forced to watch on a bank holiday. Now it's a film that has a bit of a reputation of being something of a patriotic flag-waving exercise, a pro-empire rally cry for the greatness of Britain, and some might even possibly call it racist, but they would all be wrong, because look a little deeper, and Zulu is anything but a jingoistic call to arms for the British Empire. It's actually a very sombre look at the effects of war, of human loss, and I think quite a sophisticated take on the nature of empire. Before we get all that though, we have to go back and look at the film's origins. From January 22nd to 23rd in 1879 at a small outpost in Rorke's Drift in present-day South Africa, a detachment of Royal Engineers and members of the 24th Foot 
infantry of the British army came under attack from over 3,000 Zulu warriors. Somehow, the combined force of just under 200 men managed to repel the attack, sustaining 17 dead and 15 wounded. Reports vary, but possibly some 500 Zulus, possibly even more, were killed. A total of 11 Victoria Crosses were awarded, the most for any single engagement. The battle had a very little impact on the Anglo-Zulu War and may have ended up being little more than a footnote in the history of the British Army or a good yarn for a regimental dinner. However, along came the film Zulu. Now, it's important to note that the film does take many dramatic licenses. Don't watch it for a history lesson, that is for sure. But Zulu has played a huge part in keeping the battle in people's consciousness. The film was the brainchild of AXA Stanley Baker, who at the age of 35 wanted to start producing his own films. He formed a company, Diamond Films, with American director Cyanville and began developing the screenway along with writer John Preble. Preble was a member of the British Communist Party. He had actually fought in the Spanish Civil War and Seinfeld had fled Hollywood after being named as a communist by the House of Un-American Activities. Baker himself was also a lifelong member of the Labour Party. So one might think that perhaps the motivation for the film may have been to push some kind of progressive agenda. It wasn't. They wanted a hit first and foremost. Whilst working on the film Sodom and Gomorrah, Baker struck up a relationship with producer Jovis E. Levine, who loved the script that was originally called The Battle of Rourke's Drift, which Levine was eager to change to simply Zulu. And after meeting in the Dorchester Hotel, a budget of just over $2 million was agreed and Zulu was given the green light. The production crew decided to shoot in South Africa, then under apartheid in the Dragonsburg Mountains in the Royal Natal National Park. The production would obviously involve the hiring of a large cast of Zulus and very quickly the cast and crew became more aware of how awful apartheid was. The extras could only be paid a certain amount, they were not allowed to fraternise with the whites and this was regularly ignored indeed. A projector was brought on to, to show the extras who had never seen a film before. Examples of how they wanted to act as well as Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton films. Yet the regime, the regime's policies were ever present. Baker actually sacked a white foreman who punched a black labourer and made it quite clear no such incidents would occur again. Kane was also shocked at what he saw and vowed never to film in South Africa again, which he never did. And I have to say, despite how uneasy filming in South Africa was, and as problematic as it was, the result is there on screen. It does look absolutely incredible. The cast of the film included Jack Hawkins, who was probably the film's biggest star at this point as Otto Witt, a missionary desperately trying to stop any conflict from occurring. Hawkins here plays against type. This is not the kind of stoic figure we recall from The Cruel Sea or The Bridge on the River Kwai. Witt is a deranged drunk for much of the film, ranting, seemingly delusional to how the very serious situation they have found themselves in. Stanley Baker was both the film's producer and lead actor, and he is superb as Lieutenant John Chard. Baker was a proud Welshman also and was keen to highlight and indeed celebrate the Welshness of many of the actors. That's why you get singing, a lot of singing in the film from Welsh tenor either Emmanuel. 
I was surprised to learn that Baker was actually 36 when Zulu was made. He does, in fairness, look a lot older. But next up was Michael Caine. Now, this was not Caine's first film. However, it was one of his first, and he was originally auditioned for the part of Hook that would go to James Booth. And it would be easy to simply say you could see Caine being a star in this film, but I think you really can. There has that voice that is so distinct. He's incredibly good looking. And, they, and if ever there was a movie star, it's him. And after all, he is rather good in the film as well. The aforementioned Jane Booth plays Private Hook, and as I'll go into later, he's possibly one of the most interesting characters in the film. And by far my favourite person is Joe Powell, um, Joe Powell as Colour Sergeant Frank Bourne. Now, I think it's worth noting, and as I will expand later, I also think it's worth noting that none of the Zulus in the film are really given any kind of individuality, and it's something I will touch upon later. And the film was going to be directed by Cy Enfield, who'd moved to England, as I said, in 1953 after he'd been blacklisted by the House of Un-American Activities. I have to confess, I haven't seen any of his other films other than Zulu, and there's nothing that really kind of stands out um, glaring as a kind of gap in my film watching. Stephen Daddy was cinematographer, and I can say as well, I don't think I've seen any films on his filmography before other than Zulu. And of course, there's the music by John Barry, and what a score this is. Personally, for me, it's one of his finest. The film was shot on the Super Technorama 70mm format, the same format the likes of Spartacus, King of Kings, El Cid, 55 Days in Peking were made to name but a few. There's a slight caveat with Technorama, which I've only really become recently aware of, that it's not a true 70mm format. Moreover, it is a form of VistaVision that uses a 1.5 times squeeze on the image, and then when unsqueezed gives a final ratio of 2 to 2 to 1, which matches 70mm. So although I suppose I am bending the rules a bit, prints of this film would have been delivered in the 70mm format in theatres that could play them. So I kind of suppose it's not really bending the rules. I, 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 it seems to me in the kind of the 70 millimetre community, it's kind of um, treated as being a bona fide 70 millimetre format. So, um, and also the, the name as well as an amalgamation of Technicolor who developed the format and the Delrama lenses that were used to shoot on the format. And I will have a link in the show notes so you can nerd off to that type of stuff. So what the classical attack of the Zulus is in the shape of a fighting bull buffalo like this. The head, the horns, and the loins. First, the head moves forward, and the enemy naturally moves in to meet it. But it's only a feint. The warriors in the head then disperse to form the encircling horns, and the enemy is drawn in on the loins. And the horns close in on the back and sides. What of the film itself? Well, I think what might surprise a few people is if you go back to Zulu, having not watched it in many years, it's startling how much of an anti-war film it is. And not only that, it also carries a strong anti-imperialism message. Even at the time, it did spark a wave of pro-empire nostalgia, which seems all the more strange given how Britain's empire at the time was whittling away to virtually nothing. Firstly, I think it's worth looking at the Zulus themselves. The film opens and gives a very brief introduction into their culture. Uh, Enfield and writer John Preble saw the film as a kind of British Western, and very seldom does the Western pay much attention to the culture of Native American Indians. And Zulu, despite not having a main or at least individual Zulu character, 
does show them in their land practicing their customs and as Wit and his daughter watch on, slightly uncomfortable, the naked breasts, the obvious sexual undertones of the dancing, the camera pans along the Zulus in their headdresses and shields and the wits look mildly ridiculous against the backdrop of it all and it sets the tone early on these people the whites are not supposed to be there at least in any capacity that would suggest conquering or forcing the indigenous population into conformity with their ways the british soldiers also look completely out of place in their surroundings the redcoats offer no camouflage against the environment and serve instead in reality just to paint them as targets against the grasslands its most telling moments come from the interactions of the enlisted men private hook who is greatly exaggerating his injury, a boil it seems, puts it most bluntly. And what for? Did I ever see a Zulu walk down the city road? No. So what am I doing here? You are here because you were a thief. Yeah. And you still are one. Certainly. Hook, my lad. And now, you can be a soldier, like what they pay you for. You've got me 28 days field punishment in Brecon. Isn't that enough? And it's not just Hook. The land, the environment wants them out. And it's a fairly progressive point of view for a film made in 1964. Perhaps those cheering on at the time mistook the gallantry of its characters as being some kind of endorsement. The British were somehow in the right to be there. But when we look past that, this is a simple fight for survival. It's a case of being forced into battle and to fight literally for one's life. It's practical, not sentimental. And what's more, what they actually do, disgust them. Um, Sam Fuller wrote in his biography that the mistake filmmakers often is, is believing in a kind of nobility to killing, having fought in a war himself. And, and he, like more than anyone, believed in how terrible a thing war was. And Zulu is a rare film, I think, that understands, as Fuller does, that having to kill someone and having the threat of being killed is the worst thing imaginable. And Zulu does not dehumanise the death. There are no victorious standing over the bodies. The film respects the, the gravity of the situation to acknowledge that a tragedy, not a victory, has actually taken place. And the Sulus themselves are constantly praised in their fighting ability. This is not some rabble, a group of out-of-control Luddites, it's a well-drilled, tactically aware fighting force that should and is respected. Ultimately, it is modernity that wins the battle. The British, simply, the British simply know how to shoot better and have the tactics to win, but it's far from an easy battle. That This could have quite easily have gone hideously wrong. hours and they haven't come again. Mr. Charter, patrols come back, Zulus have gone, all of them. It's a miracle. If it's a miracle, Color Sergeant, it's a short chamber boxer Henry .45 caliber miracle. And a bayonet, sir, with some guts behind it. I think the real star of the film, though, is Seinfeld's direction. Despite appearances, Enfield only had about 400 extras on the film, and a shout-out must go to art director Ernest Archer, who, with the use of some props, managed to make a Zulu army appear on the horizon. But 
Enfield's coverage never makes the film feel small in scale. He shoots with such an eye for composition, you do generally believe there are thousands of Zulus attacking the base. There's always been talk of Zulu being remade, and one can, can imagine the CGI hell that would be. You can even see the swooping drone shot over the battlefield showing Zulus piling in, and it would be awful. And I hope to God we never ever see it come into fruition, but Enfield and editor John Gibson have shot and cut the film with such pre precision, Zulu not only feels suitably epic where it needs to be, there's a real sense of claustrophobia too, suddenly the soldier's world can feel minuscule as their enemies close in. I think the widescreen frame is also perfect for showing the various military tactics on show. The drilled British soldiers moving in unison, the Zulu commanders directing their men. It really is a film about war, how it is fought, its tactics and how these tactics play out. A relatively contemporary comparison would be something like Black Hawk Down or the finale of Zero Dark Thirty, where you kind of get a better sense, I feel, what happens in those types of scenarios. And the tension the films create is palpable before the Zulus arrive we hear them and that is actually the sound of a train on the soundtrack as well and it's good direction from Enfield because you believe there is an army coming through that noise and yes it would be and it would put the fear of God in you as well damn funny like a like a train in the distance. The acting is also first rate. My favourite character is the aforementioned Bourne, played by Nigel Green. Unfappable, fatherly when needed, not afraid to dish out the discipline. He levels everyone around him. He is keeping the collective head of the battle, never wavering or succumbing to fear. Kane and Baker's interplay is great too. There's friction follow come the end of the film, mutual respect. These are two professional soldiers putting egos aside for the best of the men, and you believe them. James Booth as Hook might be the camp winger, but he's also a reluctant hero, saving his fellow soldiers and defeating the enemy. The real Hook also did receive a Victoria Cross for his exploits, and John Barry's score is absolutely superb. It's new sparingly, but when it drops, it's epic. It seems worthy of the environment the film was shot in. And Zulu, when it was played, was a huge hit. It played in cinemas for almost 12 years, becoming a TV favourite. And I think it's one of those films that needs to be seen on the biggest screen possible, which is kind of ironic that so many people would have grown up watching a crop, pan and scan version on those god-awful bank holidays. It really is an epic and is best appreciated in that way. It's an intelligent film about war empire. And it's not just something for the likes of Nigel Farage to masturbate over. It's a stone-cold classic, and it should, in my opinion, have a bank holiday in its honour. Now, the Blu-ray um, of the film uh, that I've, I've got, and I think there's a Twilight Time put one out as well. I've just got the, um, the Region B version. I think this might have been sourced from a 35mm print because it is slightly... Um, extended to the left and right and um, doesn't have kind of quite the the crop i think this, the original 70 millimeter um would have had the sound as well there would have been a six track sound on the 70 millimeter you only get a um dolby stereo track on this and it's um it's not a true hd or dts it's just it's just seems to be a, a, a just a it's just straight up Dolby Digital, which isn't to say it doesn't sound great, it does, but I do sort of, I, I, I hold out hope that um, there might be a better version 
um, of Zulu out there f- to, to be kind of put onto home media. And if someone could find a, an original 70 millimeter print, I'm sure you, know, you could do a wonderful restoration job. But that's to say that I think the film looks pretty great on this Blu-ray. So that was kicking things off then with Zulu. Invariably, whenever we talk about a film starring Steve McQueen, the conversation normally revolves around Steve McQueen. And let's be honest, the man was very cool and a pretty good actor. But there's way more to Steve McQueen films than just Steve McQueen. And the film I'm going to be talking about next, The Sand Pebbles, just happens to be the best one he was ever in. Before we get to the inevitable appreciation of Steve McQueen I think we need to talk a little bit about how the Sand Pebbles came to be. Now in the 60s the film studio 20th Century Fox was in dire straits. The Elizabeth Taylor vehicle Cleopatra was ruining the studio financially and it was damn near out of business. The studio was relying on the success of the war film The Longest Day to keep it afloat and after Longest Day was a success, Fox could again begin at developing other projects, of which the Sand Pebbles would be one. Robert Wyatt was brought in as director, fresh of the sex, success of The Sound of Music, and he was instantly drawn to the project, having read the 1962 novel by Robert McKenna. Wise felt the story was politically relevant and also wanted the opportunity to film in the Far East. It was an area of the world that was not seen much in films and Wise for audiences would want to see this part of the world brought to the big screen. And after the success of The Longest Day, The Sand Pebbles was greenlit with a huge budget of then over $10 million. And it's set in 1920s China, and although despite being set in China, it was actually made in Taiwan, and it follows the USS San Pablo as it travels up and down the Yangtze River. China is in the midst of a civil war, and when new engineer Petty Officer Jake Holman, played by Steve McQueen, is assigned to the boat, he soon discovers that a ship is a microcosm of the political turmoil in the country. The ship is effectively run by coolies, local Chinese people who have various franchises it seems in the boat from the engine room to the canteen. Holman is having none of it. He is his engine room and he's going to do things his way which brings him into conflict with the ship's captain Lieutenant Collins played by Richard Krenner. Holman befriends Frenchie played by Richard Mattenborough who falls in love with a local bar girl and soon the civil war cannot be ignored and the ship's crew come into conflict with the wider political unrest in the country. Now the Sand Pebbles is a historical weapon in the same vein as something like I would suppose Dr Zhivago. Its central story is against the backdrop of political and social unrest that directly affects the lives of the characters involved. The sheer scope of the films in these instances can often be their undoing. Exodus, which I featured in the last 70mm festival, most likely 
I don't think truly manages to pull it off. There is simply too much going, its vision far bigger than the scope the film wants to, to tell, a state coming into creation as well as a love story, and the result is a film which I think becomes very disjointed, too grandiose to ever really work. Sand Pebbles, on the other hand, is a film that I think manages to pull it all off. Now, as I said before, the film takes place during China in an age of upheaval and terminal. There's a civil war, the country is divided, and the Western powers have taken to gunboat diplomacy to keep their various countries' interests in China. There is a real sense of us the Americans and them the Chinese, both sides viewing each other with mutual suspicions. The Americans can barely hide the contempt for the people in the country they're in, whilst the Chinese view the Westerners as an economic opportunity. And The Sand Pebbles is, I think, a very political film. It asks questions. What are these Americans doing in this country? Do they have a right to be there? And it's impossible to ignore the contemporary politics of the time. By 1966, America was involved in the Vietnam War. Questions were being asked by Americans about the intervention. The Americans Now, the Americans here aren't wanted in China. They are not welcome, their presence is destabilising, and Wise and writer Robert Anderson are showing us imperialism and its pitfalls, and it manages to do this without ever preaching on about it. Instead, I actually think it's quite subtle in how it does this. The relationship between Frenchie and Bargell Maley is pure melodrama, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but it does show the clash of cultures. The other sailors on the San Pablo bid money to take her virginity, and of course Frenchie sees her as a human, yet the rest of the crew and the racist bigoted ways simply see her as meat in which they can bid on. It's a dehumanisation of other races that again we would see in the Vietnam War. I recall a scene in the documentary Hearts and Mind in which an American airman casually says that the Vietnamese don't see human life as important as those in the West. Then we cut to a rather horrific scene of a man whose children have just been killed. Many's character might be subtle. She's as pure as can be and and in reality, the actress Mayor Andrin doesn't really have a great deal to do with her other than look loving and mournful. But her relationship with Frenchie gives the film a heart. It cuts through the cultural tensions. And it might be a little on the nose for some, but, but that's what some films sometimes do, especially epics of this ilk. And I think Richard Attenborough is pretty great in the film. We can't threaten these people into being our friend. Exactly. Well, then what's the point? Now, you can hate the government and what they represent as much as you like, James. But you missionaries are only tolerated here because we have the gunboats. I question that. Chinese would run you out otherwise. They hate you and despise you. Dare you know that? I dare love them in return, and I dare trust God rather than guns. Yes, but when there are anti-foreign riots and mobs, how often have you fled to the gunboat for protection? To my shame, twice. But never again. My name is Hamilton. Holman. How do you do? This is Miss Eckert. Mr. Jameson. As you may have gathered, Mr. Jameson is a missionary. Miss Eckert, too. And this is Mr. Outscout. How do you do? British. Where are you headed? Uh, San Pablo. Gumbo. Well, if I were you, I'd jump overboard while I still had time. Do you know anything about it? Uh Uh-uh. American gunboats in central China are a painful local joke, Mr. Holman. And the most painful is the San Pablo. Oh, yeah. I, I think she's something that you chaps inherited from Spain after the Spanish-American War. <laughs> well, I missed that one. <laughs> uh, they don't let her on the Yangtze proper. No, they keep her up in some small river. 
Uh, you must know her, Jameson. She operates near Changsha. Yes, we know her. Uh, uh, Mr. Jameson dislikes gunboats. Whatever flag they fly, English, French, American, they're symbols of what the great powers have done to this nation. Now, of course, we do have to talk about Steve McQueen because I think The Sand Pebbles, as I said before, is his best film and he was rightly nominated for an Academy Award for it because he is terrific here. Now, he's an actor who does not need dialogue and he clashed with writer Robert Anderson on The Sand Pebbles over the amount of lines Holman had. Queen simply didn't need him and in reality, um, from the evidence that's provided, I think he's right. He says all he needs to say with a simple facial gesture or a casual look. His interactions with uh, Candace Bergman character Shirley are quite brilliant for this. He doesn't need to tell her his full backstory. It's all in there in those blues of those eyes. And as much as a man's man McQueen was, Holman is easily most his most vulnerable character. And through McQueen, you get a real sense of the person, not just the McQueen persona that I think comes more into the fray in films like Bullet and Le Mans. And what I love is the performance, is how he uses props as well. When he's in the engine room, he's constantly changing dial, pulling levers, always physically interacting with the environment. And I actually think that the film does demand quite a lot from him. There's humour in Holman genuine pathos and a real sense of duty and friendship to those around him but crucially i think he complements the film he doesn't dominate it i don't think it's all about steve mcqueen it's bigger than that and i don't think he's being hero worshipped in the same way he would become in some of his more self-produced efforts and possibly this is why i do believe it's his best film if it doesn't quite have the corners we often associate with him a man has been killed on this ship for the first time holman i want to know why one of the keys in the jacking gear, the holes are cranked, jarred out, sir. Why? Vibration. And why the vibration? Because of the bearing knock, sir. I guess one of them keys has been missing for a long time. And the other one just being held in by rust. Can you fix any personal responsibility for this? For the jacking gear, sir? For the accident, Holman. If there hadn't been a knock on the LP, there wouldn't have been any vibration. Chin handled the overhaul. He should have fixed it, sir. Are you saying that Chin killed himself? I'll remind you that he worked under supervision. Can't supervise an overhaul and stand deck watches at the same time, sir. Black gang should stand their watches in the engine room, sir. Lopai Shing, the number one coolie, says that you killed Chin. It's through the engine in some mysterious way. Now, that may be superstition, Holman, but it's very real to them. Your resentment of Chen was well known. The system you got on this ship is what killed him, sir. Robert Rise is a director, the likes of which, to sound cliched, um, we simply don't have anymore. Having worked as an editor mostly on Citizen Kane, he became a director working through the studio system, and a cursory look through his filmography shows a huge variety of different genres that he's worked in from westerns, noir, epics, science fiction, horror, you name it, he shot it. And from the work I've seen in this, his eye for the cinematic is quite extraordinary. And The Sand Pebbles is no exception. This being a prestige roadshow pitch production, everything about it is huge. And this owes a great deal to Wise's direction. Cinematic is a broad term open to multiple interpretation and personal choice and to me and especially films at such this I want a huge scale, I want melodrama and sweeping scores. 
Ergo, the sound bevels is pretty much all I can ask for on this front. Wise builds the film in a way we seldom see today. For its first hour and 20 minutes, it's quite an intimate affair. Much of the film takes place in enclosed locations and the dynamics of relationships and characters are able to breathe and establish themselves. And Wise keeps, and Wise keeps it all fairly simple. There's lots of mid shots and he whole takes and there's a real deliberate pace to the film and the key to enjoying films like this is to just go with them and let them breathe and let the characters slowly reveal themselves to you and no better is this shown i think when holman is forced to kill his friend pohan who is being tortured we've seen holman and pohan become friends two people with different races who have found commonality in the engine and a mutual respect for each other and as the scene plays out, it becomes increasingly aware that there's no rescue plan is going to take place. No one can save Pohan and it begs for someone on the boat to kill him. And the only person who can do it is his friend Holman. And, and it's a really, I think, brilliant scene. If you look at what McQueen does when he grabs the rifle, he doesn't just open fire, perhaps like he would in another film, but he first checks the sight to make sure it'll have the cor correct range. It's the tiny detail in this scene, I think, that makes it so poignant. He doesn't want to miss because he doesn't want his friend to suffer. A lesser film and a lesser actor would have ignored such a moment, not the sand pebbles, because its director knows that epics like these are made up of the tiny details as well. And we spent enough time with Holman and Pohan to know that they will not let each other down, even if it means having to do something as awful as this. After the film's intermission, however, Wise, the big director, kicks in and the film gets progressively larger in scale. It becomes a, raw, a war film on the river, and as the San Pablo heads up the Yangtze, possibly one of the film's most jingoistic moments is as the American flag is raised over the boat. No one salutes it, but it's rather indicative that now the situation has escalated. This is now about politics and countries, not just the individual. And we cut from the flag is to a wide shot of the river of the enemy boats blocking the San Pablo's way. For such an intimate film, the sound pebbles becomes a huge one very quickly. The escalation in the visuals, however, is never gratuitous. The events of the film are the fact by the fact of which it grows bigger in canvas. Wise is a good director of action scenes as well. There's a real sense of danger as the bullets start to fly. Possibly, I find war films of this period to be a little stale at times. Death is overly theatrical, people clutching non-existent wounds and falling over, having died being shot in the leg. Not so much here, the hand-to-hand -hand combat looks dangerous and it's violent as it should be and Wise never gets lost in the scene. The cutting and the blocking never get confusing or messy. It's well shot, well edited, coherent action. And director of photography Joseph McDonald and Wise make great use of the widescreen frame. Despite not being a 70mm production, the film feels huge in scale. No expense has been spared bringing this world to life. The production design is top-notch. Thousands of extra can be seen as far as the eye can see. And it helps, of course, because the San Paolo is actually about a boat. There's no cutaway to miniatures or match shot. And it's, of course, this is all prior CGI. So what you see is essentially what you are getting. And it also helps with the immersion of the film. Roadshow productions like this work for me because they transport you to another world, another time and another place. I remember after seeing Lawrence of Arabia on the bridge screen and actually feeling after the film had ended that I was a little bored when I set foot into the real world again because I had been in the desert and back in time and then I was plonked back onto the streets of Manchester and for me the sim the samples had a similar vibe to it it's a film that sweeps you away for three hours it's well acted written and directed great perhaps would be a bit much but it's the type of 
film, I think, a Sunday afternoon is made for. And one slight nitpick I have of the film, I suppose, is I don't think this is one of Jerry Goldsmith's best scores, but that is, I suppose, a minor complaint because overall, I think you can't really go wrong with The Sand Pebbles. The film did receive quite a wide 70mm release. As far as I can tell, there are no 70mm prints still in circulation. Um, a new 35mm print was struck for the DVD release, um, which does occasionally do the rounds. I've seen this advertised at the Bradford Widescreen Film Festival, but this will probably be, I think, the kind of the only opportunity people get to see this film on a film format, which is a bit of a shame. But the Blu-ray is a real treat. The film looks great and the soundtrack, it's a good 5.1, is top-notch and a great use of the real tra uh, rear channel. So overall, this was a real, I think, audio-visual treat and I can definitely recommend picking that up. In this place of calm and beauty, of deep and primitive emotions, the woman Bathsheba Everdeen lived. And here she gave herself to three men. I was out with my girlfriend and some of her friends recently, and as the booze flowed, they began to talk about some of their less than successful relationships. And there seemed to be a running theme going through their stories where they had encountered someone who I suppose could best be described as a bit of a rogue and normally what would happen would be one of these cads would march into their lives, sweep them off their feet and then rather unceremoniously dump them a few weeks later, sometimes even casually admitting that they were just a bit on the side and nothing serious. And what's even more strange was that in each case they were either forewarned that said person was going to be a nightmare or had worked it out pretty much for themselves from the off anyway, which kind of begs the question, why? And the answer was quite simple. These guys are the most appealing. The idea that you might be the one that can tame them or there's an aspect of the thrill of the chase going on. And it is clearly a recurring theme. So going back to John Sledge's 1967 film, Far From The Madding Crowd, I kind of feel that I got the film's main protagonist, Bathsheba Everdeen, played by Julie Christie, a little bit better than I ever had before. Now, Far From The Madding Crowd has had several film and television incarnations. There was a 2015 film, which I really enjoyed, a silent version in 1915, which is now uh, sadly lost. But, but I think for me, the definitive version so far has been this 1967 version. Although I think the film is far from perfect, I think it has a real kick to it and I, that I simply didn't get from the 2015 version or indeed from when I read the novel. The story place takes place in Thomas Hardy's Wessex, a fictional landscape created by Hardy, which we know in the kind of the present age, I suppose, as the West Country of England. And Bathsheba Everdeen, played of course by Julie Christie, inherits a farm which she is determined to run herself. And Bathsheba is courted by three men, Gable Oak, played by Alan Bates, who loses all his flock in an accident, and whose proposal to Bathsheba is rebuffed. He is loyal, talented, but pellentless and ends up working for Bathsheba after a fire almost destroys the farm. Now Bathsheba's next door neighbour is William Boulderwood, played by Peter Finch, 
older than Bathsheba, he becomes infatuated when she sends him a Valentine's Day card as a joke. It backfires spectacularly. Bathsheba simply can't give him a straight answer to his proposed marriage. And this is all further complicated when Sergeant Frank Troy, played by Terence Stamp, returns on leave and sweeps Bathsheba off her feet, marries her and proceeds to spend all her money having been jilted by the true love of his life, Fanny Robin, who on their wedding day went to the wrong church by accident. I suppose, spoiler alert, Bathsheba does end up marrying Gabriel, not before Boulderwood has shot Frank and is going to hang for it. Now, before we get into all that, however, we have to talk about the main appeal of this film for me. And it's simply how it looks, because make no mistake, Far From the Manning Crowd is an absolute beauty, which in some way, I think, might lead to the criticism that Far From the Manning Crowd is a slightly shallow film, which is certainly a criticism that I read of it. But however, this film belongs on the big screen. Now, John Sergeant had directed three films before this, A Kind of Loving, Billy Liar and Darling, and Julia Christie starred in both Billy Liar and Darling. Alan Bates in A Kind of Loving, and this film feels very much like a departure from those new wave kitchen sink dramas. Made by MGM, it's an epic film, but very much has a British epic from a classical literary source, and one can easily see why it would have been an attractive proposal for the studio. In 1965, Judy Christie's Dr. Zhivago had been a colossal hit, and although I don't think the film quite has the scope of Dr. Zhivago, you'd certainly get the impression it's trying to capture some of that audience. John Schlesinger and director of photography Nicholas Ruog have created a world so beautiful, so exquisitely filmed, that whilst watching Far From the Manning Crowd, I found myself constantly lost in their landscape. I sometimes forget just how scenic Britain is, yet seldom is it given the epic treatment as it is here. We have a tendency in British cinema not to give our country the widescreen treatment it deserves. Now, filmed in Dorset, a place I have spent a great deal of my time, Far From the Manning Crowd often looks like has a look of a film where nature itself has been a willing crew member. It's often bathed in a near perfect golden light, perfect clouds moving across the sky or their shadow along the grass. And yet when it needs to be, it is cold and bleak reflecting the community that is depicting. England is bloody cold a lot of the time and the film captures the chill along with the wonderful moments of sunshine. Slashing your shot, Billy Liar in Cinemascope. So he was used to the widescreen frame and Ryoke, who had been uh, dismissed from the from Lean's Shivago, clearly had a good understanding of the format as well. The result is a real ride screen treat. It feels enormous at time. And in the in particular, I really like the use of pans to reveal characters. Troy standing in an archway, Bathsheba waiting for Gabriel as he comes to save her sheep, and the camera worship its actors. Christy, of course, looks stunning. She and Stamp have been given an inordinate amount of close-ups, and why not? There is a real primal attraction between the two, although we want her to end up with Gabriel, of course, but it's the bad boy, Troy, in his red tunic and piercing eyes that she's going to fall for. And the film's outstanding scene is Troy seducing Bathsheba by giving a demonstration of his sword play, and yes, it is that on the nose. The image and the metaphor is all there. Wait a moment. There's a lock of hair needs tidying. Bravely born. Wonderful in a woman. How did you manage to do that with a sword that has no edge? No edge? This sword will shave like a razor. 
you said it. I've been within an inch of my life. I wouldn't say that. I'd say half an inch of being paired alive 295 times. And it's a strange scene, to say the least. It goes on to the point where it becomes genuinely uncomfortable. The music is hardly romantic, and what's more, Bashib is clearly getting massively turned on by the spectacle. And Troy is the one man who she is unable to control, it seems. Instead, she wants to give herself to him. And it's all quite interesting to me that Troy is only a sergeant. He's not an officer or a gentleman, but quite a lowly rank in the grand scheme of things. And for want of a better word, he is a bit of rough, a gambler, a drinker, no doubt with a woman in many other parts of the world. And I thought back to that chat I was having with my girlfriend and her friends, and you can damn well see the warning signs here, but sod it, she's going to go for him anyway. Now, the Sheba is an interesting character. In a man's world, she is going it alone, and Christy is superb. She's stoic and feisty when she needs to be, yet there's an under the influence of Troy, she is reduced more often to a crying wreck. She's believable, natural, relatable, and infatuation can make us say and do the most crazy thing. And let's be honest, a lot of us have had a Sergeant Troy type in our past, both male or female. Yet Bathsheba is infuriating at times. She's a flirt, and in the age of where social etiquette was a very real thing, her decision to send Boulder with a card is clearly not the done thing, and it has very real-world consequences. And I think Har Hardy is having a pop at this, though. It's a card, for God's sake, and Boulderwood, the excellent Finch, does rather go overboard with his love of her, yet he, even though his intentions are, I suppose, quite honourable, you feel for him because you know that he has secretly wanted to be liked for years. He is more often than not alone in the film, walking through the countryside, desperately trying to find some greater meaning of it all, surrounded by the huge landscape. And, I, and it's one of the reasons why I love epics like this. I want larger in life, I want grandiose, and Slezinger and Ryog give it to you in spades with this film. And what I really also enjoyed was how Gabriel grows throughout Far From Manning Crowd, a man beaten down by hard luck, and then it becomes quite the quiet backbone of the film. Despite being one of the film's main protagonists, he's not in it all the time, rather he is there quietly going about his business. And I'm not quite sure how deliberate this was, but he does seem to, Alan Bates does seem to get more and more better looking as the course of the film goes on. He goes from a rather scruffy shepherd to quite the catch. And Alan Bates, I think, is really superb in the film. You root for him. But crucially, the screenplay lets him earn this through his simple deeds. He just gets on with what's put in front of him. He doesn't have the desperation of Baldwin nor the caddish charm of Troy. But Bathsheba does eventually come to realise that he is the rock that she needs in her life. Mrs. Troy? Yes? I've been hoping to have a word. What? The fact is, I'm thinking of leaving England. Leaving England? I don't see much of a future here. California's the spot I had in mind. But I thought you would have Mr. Boldwood's place. I heard it was... I had the offer, but I decided not. That's why I thought it fair to give you clear notice. I see. Why, well, I'd hoped that if you leased Mr. Bowood, you might still give a helping look across at mine. I would have, willingly. Now that I'm at my most helpless, you're going away. Yes, that's the misfortune of it all. And it's because of that very helplessness that I feel bound to go. Yes, ma'am. 
But what I really do love about this film is its ending. Now, of course, Bathsheba and Gable end up together. But if you watch the film's ending again, I think there's something slightly more disturbing going on. Boulderwood is going to hang for killing Frank. And there's an awful shot of his coffin being prepared whilst he watches on. It gets me every time I see the film. And one would think the film would celebrate the union of Bathsheba and Gabriel. But I'm not quite sure it does because clearly she is quite heartbroken at Troy's death when we see her tending his grave. And it's clear she still needs Gabriel for help on the farm. But has true love really prevailed? I'm not sure that this is the case. And as the camera drifts back from the rain hitting the window to show Gabriel smartly dressed and Bathsheba reading in a chair, we hear the familiar sound of the gift toy gave Bathsheba for their wedding, a musical ornament in a glass orb showing a quaint village in a castle. And the camera begins to slow pan up to a red-coated soldier on the battlements, hinting that I think that Bathsheba will forever be in love with Troy. And it's kind of a downer ending. You're not really sure that love has saved the day. And I think I really admire it for that. It's bold. And I think it's a recurring element throughout the film. Troy really wanted to be with Fanny Robinson all along. He never looked really liked Bathsheba. And you rather suspect that Bathsheba really wanted to be with Troy. Boulderwood was always going to be a bad choice. And Gabriel is really the next one in line. He'll just make a good husband and contend to the farm. And that's it. And I think the film suggests there will always be unresolved elements to their relationship. Now, I'm not quite sure that Far From Manning Crowd is a masterpiece, but it is pretty great. It may be set in a small corner of England, but it feels like a huge film and it captures time and place perfectly. It looks It's a world that looks lived in. Life looks hard, bleak at times, and it's also achingly beautiful. It reminds me a little bit of something like Days of Heaven. It's perfect escapism, beautifully shot and acted with a gorgeous score. Now, there's been two Blu-ray releases of the film. Um, the first is Warner Archives, and there was another one by Studio Canal in 2015. I've got both versions, and I'm going to go with the Warner Archive version. I think it's got um, the audio track from the 70mm prints, and it's a six-track, and it also seems to be the Roadshow version. There's entrance music and an intermission. The Studio Canal version doesn't have that, and it has a slightly different colour grading. Um, I think it's a little bit more blue or green, and I'm not quite sure, but to me anyway, I think the Warner Brothers archive version is the print to pick up. So that's John Schlesinger's Far From The Madding Crowd. Nevertheless, there's no sign of evidence of a 3.1 earthquake can loosen dental fillings. No? Right, thank you. Walt! Your turn on the PR desk. Yes, that, that's right. Dr. Adams, room 14. He isn't? Um, well, then I'd like to leave a message. Walt! Just a minute, okay? Um, would you have him call Walter Russell at the Seismology Institute. Yeah, it, it's very important. Yes, th thank you. Here's a strange one. Caretaker at the Hollywood Reservoir Dam drowned at the bottom of an elevator shaft. They still haven't figured out what happened. Nothing screams 1970s more than a good disaster film. Take a scenario, a cruise ship, an airport, a tower block, whatever, throw in some 
A-list actors and let the carnage commence. It seems audiences and producers could get and not get enough of them. And of, for all the good 1970s disaster films like The Poseidon Adventure, there's a few crap ones. Roller Coaster springs to mind, plus some of the airport sequels are pretty terrible. And then there's one that film falls between the cracks. And of course, I'm talking about Earthquake. Now in 1970, Universal Studios had a huge hit with Airport and producer Jennings Lang was keen for the studio to get another disaster film into production. Lang approached director Mark Robson to help develop a project that would take the disaster mover into an even bigger canvas, in this case an entire city in the form of Los Angeles. Mario Puzo was brought on to work on the script fresh from the success of the Godfather novel and films, but the project was put on hold for a short period after the Puzo script was deemed too expensive to put into production. The success of Fox 1972 film The Poseidon Adventure made Universal reignite the project with writer George Fox coming on board to work on the Puzo script. It was Fox's first ever attempt at a script and after 111 drafts, Earthquake was ready to put in production with a budget of $7 million. It was also facing competition. Fox had also greenlit the towering inferno with the type of cast one could only drool at. Earthquake would enlist Moses himself in the form of Charlton Heston, who was linked to the towering inferno. And he would also co-star alongside Ava Garner, George Kennedy, Richard Roundtree, and a cameo from Walter Matthau. It was also to utilise a new surround format, Sense Surround, that was designed to take to make a theatre shake with bass during the climatic earthquake sequences. And there will be more on that later. Interesting, John Williams composed both Earthquake and Towering Inferno, and having enjoyed success with the Poseidon Adventure, and indeed the two 1974 films do share um, some thematic similarity in Williams' music. And my God, that man did have a busy 1970s. So what of Earthquake itself? Well, not to, f well, it'd be far too convoluted to go into the interests of the various plotments, but basically a bunch of s seismologists believe the big one is coming. And a former football hero, Charlton Heston, who is also an architect, is dealing with his crazy ex-wife, Garner, and his best mate's widow, who he's having an affair with. There's a cop played by George Kennedy, who has managed to get himself suspended on the day of the earthquake, a motorcycle stunt team, an incel, and a big earthquake that will take all, that will make all of these various assorted characters come together. And the, oh, and there's also a lot of people denying that anything bad is actually going to happen, and a plethora of hysterical women. Earthquake was part of a trend, and it is blatantly, unapologetically a commercial and adventure. And of course, it's the case for main for almost all films, but this one really does wear its cash credentials on its sleeve. The problem is, despite being competently directed by Mark Robson and indeed having some genuinely impressive moments of destruction and carnage, the film does not quite to come together as a coherent whole. It feels like a film that needed more development, more nuance. This, I believe, is down to the sheer volume of subplots and characters it has. We don't really need the motorcycle stunt team. Um, subplot with Richard Rounder and we certainly don't need the Walter Matthew camo, cameo or indeed most of what goes on in the bar in which he will, props up pointless fights, ogling of women it all seems rather base if you ask me 
And what happens is the film begins to juggle so many different tonal shifts. You find yourself finding it increasingly hard to stay focused on the events on hand or really care that much about the characters in the first place. Take Charlton Heston. It's impossible to see how he and his wife Remy, Ava Garner, ever got married in the first place. They're surely based upon Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, circa the Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf years. Her insistent nagging and moaning is actually unbearable. God damn it! Your last words last night, the very first words you greet me with this morning. Don't you think you ought to do something about expanding your vocabulary? Yeah, while well, you expand your test. Did you get enough exercise jogging this morning? Don't you ever get tired. I don't think I'm going to have time for breakfast this morning. Why not? It's ready. Denise Marshall's boy asked me for an autographed football. Going to drop it off on the way to the office. An autographed football from you? And you haven't played football in 16 years. Well, I guess it's part of this nostalgia binge everybody's on. Anyway, it's the ball Frank Gifford signed. That's the signature he really wants. You know, I find it peculiar. Almost amusing. The widow Brian Marshall comes back into town after seven months, and you rush off without even so much as a cup of coffee. But if I ask you... You ask me to stop off at the market to pick up a head of lettuce for you, I find some excuse. Christ. But Charles' character, who's called Stuart, also has a bit on the side. Another than other one of his mate's widows, who happens to be young enough to be his daughter, with whom he is helping through a grief by nipping over every lunch for a quick shag. And of course it's Heston, so you sort of forgive him, but need to say, she has a dopey annoying son, of course we'll need rescuing at some point, but like most kids, I fail to care about his welfare in any way, shape or form. So if I'm being picky, he could have just sodded off as well. George Kennedy, however, is pretty great as Officer Lou Slade, placed on leave, Dirty Harry style, for an early misdemeanor, he gets given all the best lines in the film's funniest moment and emerges a bona fide hero as the film progresses. And crucially, you actually like him as well. You actually want him to survive the carnage and hopefully get a promotion or at least his job back come the end of the film. The real oddity, though, is Jodie, played by Marjo Gortner. Gortner, in real life, was an ordained evangelical preacher at the age of four by his parents and was performing sermons and even weddings. Eventually, his fame would earn his family millions whilst all this money would actually be stolen later by his father. And Gortner then spent some years as a kind of rock and roll preacher in the vein of Mick Jagger before eventually leaving that life, exposing its darker sides of the evangelical movement and becoming an actor. In Earthquake, he plays Jody, a convenience store clerk who is also part of the National Guard. Mocked by his housemates for being gay due to pictures of bodybuilders on the wall, Jodie goes full incel after the quake strikes, killing his housemates and attempting to rape Rosa, one of the girls from the bar that Officer Lou and the Water Master Gal character drink in. Now, Jodie's a legitimately creepy character. I'm not sure if the writers are making a kind of rather crude statement hints that Jodie's nastiness comes from his latent homosexuality, or he's just written as a generally spooky character, but Jodie is thoroughly unsettling, a real misogynist, psycho psychopathic, angry, vile human who's exploiting the carnage to fulfill his murder-rape fantasies on anyone he finds. Y'all patrol that area up there and watch out for looters. Move out!
Hey, Sarge, look what we found. Cody, for Christ's sake, what a break. Got these guys around the corner. Their car had broke down. Look at the goodies they had with them. Uh, you think we ought to shoot them? Cody, we've just been putting you on. You, you can't kill guys for that. Oh, maybe they didn't steal these necklaces and things. Maybe they're just fags that like to dress up in women's jewels. You find any dresses in the car? <laughs> no, Jody. Well, I guess we'll have to shoot them. Hey, wait a minute, Jody. I was telling these guys just today to lay off. I swear to God, I was. Ask them. Yeah. Ask them. If you're those naked guys on the wall, that didn't mean nothing. We knew that you lifted weights and all that crap. Scum like you think you can get away with anything. Push people around when you want to, steal when you want to, make fun of men who have to work for a living, huh? Not today. Hey, come back, you guys. I was only kidding. Hey. Hey, don't do that, man. Not like back in the store, is it, Miss Amici? No scrawny bitches coming in asking for double green stamps two days after the special's over, huh? None of that stuff. Move it! I want this whole patrol area quarantined. No civilians are to be allowed through without being questioned. Can't tell, they might be looters. What about the people trying to get through to Wilson Plaza aid station? I meant everybody! There's no other clear streets around here. Move out! What's great about these types of characters in film though is that they have absolutely no redeeming features whatsoever. You're literally counting the time until they get dispatched, which, spoiler alert, does happen in his, this film. What can't be denied, however, is how impressive the destruction is when it finally arrives. The miniature work is absolutely superb and I have to contest, I think it really does legitimately hold up. Buildings collapse, debris falls, and of course the camera shakes and yes, there are some moments of unintentional humour. A man running into a house to turn off the gas with a cigarette hanging out his mouth only to be followed by a huge explosion and this scene has never failed to amuse me and the fake blood spewing all over the camera is pure gold yet sometimes especially indoors you can tell the falling pipes and masonry are styrofoam it just kind of bounces off the victims who, who try and act like they've actually been hit by the real thing and in truth, they're fooling no one. And of course, the women in the film simply act hysterical, fainting and screaming and requiring male assistance at all times. There's a kind of refreshing stoicism about the guys letting the ladies go first at all times that I actually quite enjoyed, as well as laughing at the dumb questions people to ask anyone at any given time. Another selling point of Earthquake was the sense around format and there were only four films made with this. The, um, there was obviously this one, Midway, Roller Coaster and the Battlestar Galactica film and sense around basically consists of adding multiple subwoofers that were capable of generating far greater levels of low end frequency. Stacks of them were specifically made to put in the theatre, often necessitating the removal of chairs that 
from the cinema and could be rented at a rate of $500 a week per screen. The drawbacks were not only costly, but also practical. In some cases, masonry actually fell off the walls, as well as ruining quiet films that were taking place in the same theatre. I'm researching this episode, I'm researching Sense Around though, I did actually find accounts of people who saw Earthquake in the format, and the results do seem to be legitimately impressive. It prompted the studio Fox to develop their own version of it, including Mega Sound, which, um, if you remember, I spoke about, um, was used on the film Outland, which I spoke on last year's 70 Midway Film Festival. Now, there is a Sense Around option on the Earthquake Blu-ray, which, to be honest, was not all that different from the main track, and props to the Blu-ray on this, because I think it does look and sound great. I actually have two subwoofers in my film room, and I, to try and uh, replicate um, something of sense around. I, I, one of the subwoofers is quite close to where I sit, so I, got, I kind of really upped the uh, the volume of it. And uh, yeah, I have to um, confess, I did rather enjoy those scenes of destruction with the added bass vibrating through the floor. However, overall, Earthquake is a very mixed bag of a film. There's a good film in there somewhere, and perhaps it's slightly more stripped down character-wise and a little more focused and devoid of rather poor attempts at humour. It could have been something far more interesting. Instead, I think we have a by-the-numbers affair that has too much of a whiff of a cash grab about it to really care all that much. It has its moments, though, and it's infinitely better than any CGI shitfest. And that ending with the unhappy couple of Heston and Ava Garner being flushed down the sewer is an apt metaphor for the hideous marriage, but also a timely reminder that a 1970s cinema would often leave you on a downer just to be a bastard. Of course, the film was a huge hit, and even if it hasn't aged that well, there's still plenty to enjoy amongst the carnage if you're in the right mood for it. Now, on the kind of 70mm um, notes, the, the film did receive quite a big 70mm release. And there have been attempts uh, to replicate the um, original sense around um, experience of the earthquake. And in 2004, the um, cinema house in Bradford did this. And I will leave a link to the write-up of that in the show notes. But but I haven't heard of any um, recent 70mm screens. I, could, I certainly haven't been able to find any listings of it. So that was Earthquake. Have you ever tried to love a film like actually really try and enjoy it but no matter how hard you try you simply cannot make the connection you feel the film deserves it may be you're not quite getting it appreciating it especially when everyone around you seems to love it take for example the film portrait of a lady on fire a film so boring i actually began to fall asleep about 20 minutes in but a film that seems to have as universal love and i honestly think i might be the only one who seems to think there's something profoundly awful about the film. Is it just me? I'm not entirely sure. I have a sinking suspicion that when anyone talks in a glowing way about a portrait of Lady of Fire, they're in fact lying. However, despite watching the next film three times in the space of a week, I'm still slightly unsure as to how I feel about it. I know for one that for a good while I was with the film, and then I was left utterly perplexed and then rather tired of it, and indeed, I rather fall, I think I've fallen into a trap, which is to think way too much about very silly films. And the film in question is, of course, 
Ken Russell's altered states. I won't even attempt to give a coherent overview of the film's narrative. It roughly consists of a mad scientist called Jessup, played by William Hurt, who through a series of sessions in an immersion tank and taking some seriously strong hallucinogenic drugs, begins to discovers that he can regress into a kind of primal state at the very beginning of time or something, where he becomes a blob or something, or a thing of energy or something. He also has an on-off relationship with wife Emily, and is helped by best friend Arthur, played by Bob Balaban, who every time I see, I wonder why he wasn't a bigger star than he actually ended up being. I've really no idea what's going on with Alter State, but suffice to say, when treated as an experience, and a cinematic attempt at realising a trip, it kind of works. The sheer visual spectacle of Alter States is worth the effort alone. Simply put, films don't look and sound like this anymore, which makes the film unique in its own right. It is a bonanza of the crazy. I don't think anyone, possibly even Salvador Dali on acid, could chuck together such a menagerie of the mental. We know what type of filmmaker Ken Russell is. I personally find him greatly hit or miss. He's a director who I believe is best enjoyed just going along with, even if that means having to put up with a great deal of material that falls very wide of the mark. It's a film you're supposed to experience in the same way the characters are experiencing what they're doing as they go on their various hallucinogenic journeys. And while I watched it on a relatively big screen, I can only imagine how incredible this would have been at the cinema, especially on 70mm. I do have to make a confession as well. I have on occasion dabbled in drugs and have experienced some truly bizarre moments on them. Occasionally I smoke cannabis and have found that effects on me can be quite bizarre. I often experience quite deep moments of thought where long buried, buried memories come rushing back in a random or order. Often I smoke just before I go to bed and lie there listening to weird music. And some of these experiences have been actually quite profound and even transcendental. Although nowhere near as hellish as altered states, level of crazy, I kind of did get what Russell was trying to achieve, a visual stream of conscious not bound by recognisable logic that is experienced into a realm removed from anything we know. We often feel compelled to attach meaning to cinema, as in do we deed life. The phrase everything happens for a reason is one that I actually despise, but it's a very telling statement. It actually says, Peter, I think it actually is indicative of the fact that people are looking for a logic in the world, unseen in the background, pulling away at the strings of our destiny. Now you could, on a frame-by-frame -frame basis, go through altered states and try and attach some meaning to what Russell is doing, to psychoanalyze the imagery, to compare it or textualize it, and what we, what we are seeing and experiencing. You know those weird induced trips or whatever they are? It's best just to go along and enjoy it on a primal level. Take what you want from them. And I would wager that not even Russell really knows what the hell's going on. And sometimes, although when someone chucks in some Christ on the cross with goat's head or something, you can guarantee someone is trying to piss someone off. And of course, there's some very weird naked women scenes. What happens during these blackout periods is you get the feeling of phenomenal acceleration, like you're being shot out over millions, billions of years. Time simply obliterates. You sense the hallucination is going on, but you get no images. Well, I want to break through that blackout barrier. I want to know what those images are that I know are going on, but I can't see. We can't raise the dosage of the drug because we're close to toxic levels now. So the only way to intensify the experience is to take the 200 milligrams in conjunction with the tank. There's a lot more things I'd like to do to that drug before you take it again. I'd like to do a half-life determination. That would take us a year. Like the transport system. I'd like to find Look. some analogs. All I know is this Mexican stuff is an extraordinary substance, and every instinct I have tells me I'm under something hot here. And another 200 milligrams isn't going to kill anybody. 
if the visuals weren't batshit crazy enough, then the dialogue truly is. The characters are slightly mad lab types, constantly speaking philosophical scientific babble. The lines are delivered with enough gusto to make you believe what they are saying, yet you really don't really understand a word that's going on. William Hurt is pretty great in the film. He spouts off about finding something or other inside and then goes on the quest like the madman he is. And the film unfolds at such a breakneck speed you haven't really got the choice other than to go along with it because if it did slow down and the characters add actual conversations that try to explain what they were actually going going on about, you'd have zero idea in the slightest what all this was anyway. And I just take it easy. None of us are so terrific at reading x-rays. What are you guys looking for? Just put these in an envelope. Who's reading tonight in radiology? Dr. Wiesenschaft. I want someone to look at those x-rays who can read them. I'd rather not have everyone in the Brigham in on this. It's bad enough we've got this nosy x-ray technician. Are you all right? I'm fine, Mason. I tried to indicate this was just a transient thing. Transient ischemic attack, that's what it was. He's got his voice back. It wasn't an ischemic attack. It wasn't a seizure. You saw the x-rays, Mason. There was clearly something anterior to the larynx that looked like a, a laryngeal sac that's strictly simian. I obviously regressed to some quasi-simian creature. I'm gonna show these someone who can read a right, because you're reading them wrong, that's all there is to it. Because <laughs> no one's gonna tell me you de-differentiated your goddamn genetic structure for four goddamn hours and then reconstitute it. I'm a professor of endocrinology at the Harvard <laughs> Medical School. I'm an attending physician at the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital. I'm a contributing editor to the American Journal of Endocrinology, and I'm a fellow and vice president of the Eastern Association of Endocrinologists and president of the Journal Club. And I'm not gonna listen to any more of your capitalistic Quantum, friggin' dumb, limbo, mumbo-jumbo. I'm gonna show these to a radiologist. What you do need to know, however, is that Jessup is slowly turning into an ape of some sort, and that's when things get very, very weird indeed. Body horror was a subgenre of choice in the 1980s, and what we love about these films is seeing in which characters undergo their grisly change. Jessup's moments of transformation are legitimately brilliantly realised on screen. They look painful, awkward, weird, and the film doesn't ham them up. This is serious stuff and I don't think the work, film would work anyway if it had a kind of an American werewolf in London vibe about it. However, when all this kind of body horror stuff started, I realised this is the direction that Altered States was heading, which essentially was a man running around going apeshit. I actually like the scientific mumbo-jumbo and psychedelic stuff, basically the science. The monster stuff, not so much. First of it, it's just not that scary. And I think the kind of film becomes a bit dumb when this is actually going on. The horror element of the film is well handled by Russell, but I don't think he creates suspense all that well. And the soundtracks appears to be doing all the hard work along with some loud sound effects. And in these moments, I did find Altered States was beginning to lose me. But I did, I did enjoy the aforementioned sciencey stuff, despite not really getting what everyone was going on about. And the end of the film with Jessup entering some kind of primal void with his wife jumping on is legitimately incredible, beautifully blending practical and optical effects that put that reminded me of the latter stages of 2001. And the sound design of the film is actually incredible. The swirling and whirling explosions of matter and glue and all this kind of stuff. And rightly, the film did get a, an Oscar nod for best sound and props to composer John Coriglanio, whose score was also nominated. Overall, I did enjoy Altered States for its sonic and visual presentation, but 
I doubt I'll ever really come to love this film. It may well grow on me with repeat viewings, and I'd definitely be interested in seeing it again. And certainly, I think it was from this part all downhill for Ken Russell's career. He never got this type of budget again, and would, I think, kind of basically fade away into, well, not obscurity, but certainly away from mainstream filmmaking. With a budget of $15 million, it did only recruit 19. And perhaps, just perhaps, the industry thought Russell was a little bit too out there to ever take this kind of risk on again. Now, some 70mm notes. This film was released in Mega Sound System, just like Outland, and the 70mm soundtrack had an additional bass effect known as Two Baby Booms. And I really do think that would have been something quite impressive to experience. It did receive a wide 70mm release and had its previews on Christmas Day in 1980. But it does occasionally crop up at 70mm film festivals, especially in America, so let's hope that continues to do so. The Blu-ray of this film is also excellent. Great picture and cracking sound. It was a pretty great viewing experience, um, and I really did crank up the second sub to kind of replicate that uh, mega sound system, and I, I, was, I thoroughly enjoyed myself doing it. Um, so that's going to be it for part one of this year's 70mm festival. Part two will be arriving shortly. Um, many, I hope you're enjoying it. Let me know your thoughts and um, I will be in contact soon. Many thanks. Bye.